I have always felt that journalism even was a tool for me, right? I did not study journalism. I did not come into the media thinking that I wanted to work at places like The Guardian. I, I very much describe it as having tripped and fallen into the space. Um, and one that sucked me in because I have always written, because I've always told stories. Um, but first, actually, I wrote poetry. Um because I've always been really observant and recognize the power of stories to shape our perceptions of ourselves and the world in which we live. This is something that has resonated for, for me from the jump. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskin Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane. Moleskin Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. For this episode, we welcome Eliza Nyangwe, editor of the award-winning CNN project As Equals, that highlights the realities of systemic gender inequalities around the world. Eliza began her career working for international development environmental NGOs, but has spent over a decade in media, working at The Guardian, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and most recently as managing editor of The Correspondent. Eliza is the founder of The Nzinga Effect, a media project focused on telling the stories of African and Afro-descendant women, and is a media commentator, moderator, and author. In this episode, she shared with us her experiences in journalism and her thoughts on the role of modern storytellers. In this conversation, Eliza will explore three words, curiosity, love, and language. Enjoy. For every conversation that we had, you know, we asked our guests to, to choose three words that resonate with them in that specific moment in time. And, uh, and we use it to guide our conversation and our ex- little exploration together. And, um, and you choose three words that actually are very also quite dear to me. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised that you choose these words. And you choose curiosity, love, and language. Why those three words came to mind? Yeah, I mean, the world is full of words, right? So um, I really just tried to go with my gut. And I think I think it says my three words say something about me and also something about how I perceive the world at the moment and how I perceive my place in it. So curiosity um, seems to me, um, actually all three, well, but particularly the first two, curiosity and love, seem to be in this particular moment we're living ill understood not particularly valuable or prized and you know somewhat a waste of time or misrepresented in some way and i really i'm challenging myself to remain curious so the idea in an age where you know we have lots of information at our fingertips and all questions seemingly answerable and um, what becomes then a valuable, you know, more valuable is good questions rather than sort of accessible answers. And to get at good questions, you need to be curious. But also I think about that in my own intimate spaces and in my own private life and in my, with my family. And I, I think that it's so easy to 
sit within and repeat specific dynamics if you're not curious about why those dynamics exist in the first place, if you're not curious um, about the people behind the sort of personas, you know, um, whether it's mom, dad, or, you know, colleague, um, to just remain curious might open up new possibilities for those relationships and for the situations in which we find ourselves. And after coming, you know, as we're still living through this pandemic moment, um, it really felt to me that, um, you know, I really needed to tap into into a curiosity about what could life be if it doesn't continue down the path that it's been on, right? Like we've hit a, a false stop. And I think that people make easy assumptions about what that four stop is going to do for us what positive it's what good it's going to do for us and I don't think that that is necessarily true I think that the sort of undercurrents um of our societies are going to uh, you know I felt this really viscerally last year that if I don't do things actively to swim against the tide I'm going to be pulled back in the current of how you know our societies are organized whether I like it or not um and I remember being much younger when you know the big financial crisis of 2008 2009 happened and a sort of young I wouldn't necessarily call myself a socialist but you know in 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 the in the youth of my sort of like political awakening I thought this is a great moment for us to stop and think about how we organize ourselves in relation to each other, economic systems, the planet, et cetera. And then I was like, but, but wait, we're, we're just being told to shop our way out of crisis. You know, it is our social duty uh, to consume. And then I realized, oh, there, there, the sort of, there is no natural tendency um, towards an inclusive progress. Like we have to seek it out. And so you need curiosity for that. And love is the same thing. You know, um, I started this new job at CNN last year. Um, I'm the editor of uh, a team and a project called As Equals, which focuses on gender equality and looking at how do we cover gender stories. And um, I remember just after I started, I guess my senior, my my boss, two bosses removed, I guess. Um, so, you know, a senior member of our, of our team who I respect greatly um, asked me, you know, not as a test, but in kind of like trying to seek to understand where my head was at. Like, okay, Eliza, CNN doesn't have many beats. You know, everybody covers news. Um, here you are with a pot of cash and distance from the daily news agenda um, with a focus on gender. What are you going to do? What is on your mind? And I hesitated for a minute because the answer to that question was odd. Um, and I'm hesitating less because the answer to that question is love. <laughs> and I was... And, you know, now that um, Bell Hooks has left us, uh, I think that people are reckoning a bit more with love. But I don't think that we appreciate love enough. I think that our popular culture presents love in a way that is um, magical, but also uh, extractive, also ephemeral, you know, transient, and, and not as a way to organize one's life and not as a way to imagine even our relationships with the inanimate world and not as a way to imagine our relationships with ourselves, our colleagues, you know, just thinking about what does love mean as a way to, even in, in context of revolution, what does what does it mean to love? And what does love mean if I'm rethinking gender roles? Um, uh, so that is something that I've been really interested in and not shying away from 
even though it feels and sounds really woo-woo, you know, um, that actually um, what we end up with and what I perceive and doesn't feel, I think, from the perspective of my own upbringing, uh, a, a comfortable place to be is in a world where in trying to seek safety and liberation, we run towards, you know, um, people who are the same to us, right? A kind of Marcus Garvey, you know, Black America not safe in America, so we're going to go find our, we're going to form our own utopia somewhere else. And the sort of homogeneity of that just really does not appeal to me at all. And so how do we, as Audre Lorde says, you know, like, how do you love and resist? Um, because I think if we do not reckon with love, we're not going to build a world that is comfortable, even if we won the fight, you know, whatever that fight may be. So that's love. And the last is language because I am obsessed with it. Like, you know, I think if I was to restart my life or if I was to go into academia, I'm always sort of thinking on the sort of origins of words because like language is something that is entirely made up and yet like holds everything about how we understand each other, how we relate to each other. And of course, there are different types of language, right? There is, you know, touch and art and, you know, different ways of, and symbols um, and symbolism, but also the sort of spoken words um, and the written word and, you know, and film, all, all the kinds of mediums in which I am immersed in my day-to-day life. Um, I just find them so incredibly powerful, right? Um, I think so much about, that now famous, you know, Instagrammable quote by Ursula K. Le Guin, where she says, you know, the divine right of kings and queens was unquestionable um, until it wasn't, right? That's not exactly the quote, but it's basically <laughs> this idea that, you know, um, some things seem that they're always going to be this way um, until they're not. And then the bit that never makes it onto the sort of Instagrammable quote card is that that, that, uh, the the sci-fi writer Ursula K. Le Guin imagined that that role of helping people to imagine a world beyond kings and queens or beyond extractive capitalism or beyond even nation states or beyond race or beyond the gender binary um, starts with people who use language, right? That it is formed first in the imagination. Um, and then we give words to to that reality. And then that, then, you know, um, systems are built around that. And I'm fascinated by that stage. I'm also fascinated by it because we seem to often get really stuck there and we become really then interested in policing language and not understanding that language is a tool to help us move into, into new, you know, ways of being together and seeing and organizing our lives. Um, so that's a very long answer to why those three words. Well, I mean, it- it wasn't long at all. Like it was rich though. Like you touch upon like quite a number, quite a number of things that really make me think. Because when you started and you talk about curiosity, you know, curiosity feels like almost the, almost like an antidote to, um, to patterns um, and to, and to structures and to assumptions. Um, but so I guess the, one of the questions that came to me when you were talking about it is like what is what are some of those patterns that 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 you resist or you think you should resist in a sense that as naive as as a mouth sound um because i don't want to take it for granted it's like you know 
what's wrong with it? What's wrong with, with the element of sometimes go in the direction that society is going? Nothing. And actually, you know, I think this is, again, at least for me, a sign of maturity, right? That we're not resisting for resisting sake, that I'm not pursuing some sort of ego driven um, idea of being unique and an individual. And so therefore, anything that seems popular, anything that seems um, to be going with the tide, I resist arbitrarily, right? But it's about knowing yourself enough and being curious enough about what are the underlying motivations for myself or for the society um, with this idea, with this pattern, um, to then understand whether or not you want to resist. And to really, again, with being honest with oneself, making that decision about where that if that's where you want to invest your energy like we have finite time um and you know for me i'm really i have i've changed for example my instagram profile to say you know that i'm a new student of the soft life um because i don't want to spend all my time all my energy in some sort of you know, confrontational conflict state um, about things that are meaningful um, and important, but then that really prevent me from being able to rest, uh, explore, follow the curiosity, love, um, you know, and, and so I, I'm not I, I'm I'm not against going with the flow. In fact, I'm, I've actually taken a fairly kind of um an evangelical approach to my life now. Like, I do not presume to preach to anybody <laughs> what they should do and how they should choose to live. Um, because I recognize that it takes immense mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual energy to try and forge a life for yourself. And we have different capacities in terms of, you know, um, how much we want to... Uh, to to reckon with the things that we see around us, right? How much how much we're even aware of them? How much we perceive those systems, and so and once we then perceive them, how much we want to try and figure out other ways of living. Um, you know, I often say to people um, that the way I'm I'm choosing to live my life often ends up feeling really lonely, even the way I'm choosing to work. Like within CNN, there are certain established patterns within any organization, right? Patterns and ways of doing things. And I always come in and ask myself, well, does it serve the purpose that we want to achieve? But to be in that state of questioning and that state of searching and that state of experimentation um, can be really draining, you know? And so um, I do not presume that everybody wants to do the same thing, has the desire to do the same thing. So um, the, some of the patterns that I perceive for myself, I think one of the most Im important ones that I'm prioritizing to try and think about new ways around in 2022 is uh, around independence, right? The idea that we are self-contained, <laughs> um, you know, individuals who then relate to each other um, on the basis of some sort of, of cons consumption and exchange, right? Like kind of like, I will, I get something from you. So therefore I will entertain this relationship or I get something from this organization, you know, the kind of commodification of all of our interactions. Um, and I think that the unhealthy flip side of that coin is codependence, where we have an unhealthy reliance on each other. And so I'm interested for myself in 2022 to think about how I move towards 
interdependence. How do I recognize that we are not designed and built and do not function best um, independently as such? How do I recognize that the that independence mostly serves market forces and not our higher, whether it is emotional, spiritual, or even work ambitions, you know, and I mean that in, in not in a job sense, but in kind of like the work that we want to dedicate our lives to. Um, interdependence serves that best. But how do I do that in a way that doesn't, res- you know, that doesn't just fall back on kind of old expectations or old narratives about, you know, what it means to be in community, which is can be very hierarchical, can be very patriarchal. Um, so I don't know what the answer to that is. Like while I've been here in South Africa, I went on a hike with some friends and I was saying to them, hey, you know, like we prize ourselves and uh, pride ourselves in being on the continent where Ubuntu is, you know, the philosophy I am because we are. But beyond saying that and tapping ourselves on the back, what does it look like to live our lives in a way that, you know, that uses Ubuntu as the way we organize our relationships, our work lives, our interactions with people does it move us from example for example from a kind of like charity model towards a more solidarity model I I have no idea but these are some of the things that I'm asking myself um in in this year as we come into this year and as I do my work um so that yeah that the the the, that I think independence is a is a is a big one I'm, I'm really interested in looking and exploring how to be more interdependent and what might emerge from that mm-hmm. and and why do you think love is is such a resisted concept? I think it's because it's poorly understood. You know, it has been sort of, um, it has been left, or there's a word I'm looking for that I can't remember how to say, but it is, it is consigned to um, the space of, uh, feeling mm-hmm. and 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 I don't think that's what it is you know I grew up in the church and while I I have re I have <laughs> reset my relationship with organized religion I still think that there's something really important in what I grew up hearing about love being a verb right that love moves you to action it's not just something that you sit around and feel and then when you when it, you stop feeling it um, you then go and look for some other source to feel it from, right? Um, and that's not to say that all of that stuff isn't wonderful, because you know me, like I'm out in these streets trying to be hella sex positive. So, <laughs> so but that that isn't that has nothing to do with love. The idea that I do think it is because it's mysterious. I do think it's because it calls it 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 asks for more of us. Um, I do think it's because we, you know, we have organized our societies in there's a hierarchy of intimacies and, uh, you know, the sort of our general acquaintances or people we don't know at the bottom. And then it kind of they're these strata. And then right at the top, we say that our nuclear family and particularly, you know, this the heteronormative concept of you finding your significant other, you marrying this, you know, woman find man. And that is where love exists. Right. And perhaps also in, you know, in our family, our, you know, our wider family unit. Um, but if you take that apart entirely, um, I just don't think we know where to start with trying to ask ourselves, you know, how do I love myself 
in a way that moves me to action? How do I love the planet that I, you know, this rock on which I live in a way that moves me to action? Um, and whether or not I feel, you know, effervescent bubbles in my stomach about it or not. Um, so, and, and, you know, and, and I think, I think that is, I think that is a, a really radical idea, you know, how do I love my enemy in a way that doesn't seem trite? Um, because I recognize that, you know, I'm not Elon Musk or his generation of billionaire who are very excited <laughs> about extracting themselves from the one home that we have, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've given up on it. At least that's my assumption. I'm very interested in doing life here with all the other people that are here in all the ways in which they're different from me. And I think that the only way I can do that is to fully love myself because that will enable me to protect my boundaries, to recognize my worth, all of these things that we talk about or that have kind of are coming back into our, into our current public conversation, but then extend it beyond that, extend it beyond the people who are me and like me to understand that even if I want radical change, I still have to share this planet with these other people. And what does that look like? You know, I think about this in my day-to-day -day work. Um, we, I'm trying to get us to call out patriarchy, to point to, to, to patriarchal systems. But how do I do that without denigrating men necessarily? It is not, you know, it, 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 it's not that binary. Um, it seems and I think like that's, because that's the, that's, that's the hard part that works very well in theory. And we, you know, because there is this element and, and that's, and that's the question of like, you know, love and justice and, 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 and there is, you know, and, and, you know, since, since you quoted bell hooks, you know, she talks about this and, and, and there's, you know, to a certain extent, you might argue that there cannot be love and injustice at the same time, you know, at the same time, you know, you have to put yourself in it. And there is almost like a contradiction in the action that you need to do. Because how can you enforce love in the face of injustice? How would that play out for you as an individual? But also, even more difficult, I think, to a certain extent, how can you do that as, um, as a public figure? How can you do this as somebody also to shape stories and to shape narratives? Did you manage to reconcile these two concepts? No, I think particularly as someone who is a little bit in the public eye or, you know, uh, I wouldn't call myself a public figure, but, you know, um, I'm definitely probably more visible than a lot of other people. I am very nervous about this moment where, you know, what do we call it, the cancel culture, right? Um, and I'm not actually that particularly interested, nor do I think it is a real thing. The people who most cry wolf about cancel culture are the people who are, you know, the most visible, who have the most access to platforms and um, and they use it as a way to shut down, you know, um, uh, dissenting voices. Um, but I more mean, um, you know, that in that I think people, the justice bit is really hard. I mean, the love bit is really hard too. 
But then we are now saying that we can only afford to give that love to, you know, um, people like ourselves in whatever way that might be. And, and so then maybe we stop seeking justice. I mean, like, how can you, how does, how do you pursue justice if you do not reckon with the people who have caused the injustice? Right. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I mean, the short answer to that is that I don't think I have figured out, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous for myself about being held, um, about needing to sort of belong to any particular camp. Um, because as I've said, I, I, I like, I'm not a pack animal and I like to do life with the multiplicity of, you know, of, of the other <laughs> life forms here on this planet. Um, so I don't, I don't know how we work that out, but I think that there is, I do think that when you are in the midst of it, you do not understand, you do not see how much, um, how much things are changing. I think that we, you get to a point where you then you look back and then something becomes, you know, the rigueur, something seems the norm, but that in the midst of that moment, and I definitely think that we're at that moment, right? You can definitely see these sort of like tectonic plate shift, um, shifting. Um, and what we're experiencing is the kind of like the volcanic uh, eruptions that, that happen when, that's going on um and that increasingly you know last year I was really terrified about this idea of moving towards interdependence and thinking about what that would look like it made me feel vulnerable in ways I haven't felt vulnerable in a very long time um and yet now in the sort of atmosphere around me I'm seeing other people sort of talking about the same thing so I do think that there's there's something in the air um, and that all we can do is try and look at in, a re in our own really small ways how we embody these things ourselves um, and how we try and live them out. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and push back um, where we can, um, you know, against the ideas that it, 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 is, it, is, it is, that injustice is unrelenting um, and that there is a kind of like, just world that exists only when we are kind of you know um homogenous and i think i'm curious about how do you how do you get here in the sense that um Me too. <laughs> no because 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 it's like you know because okay you were born you were born in cameroon you've lived around the world you spent in london you know many years in london um but also there is an element like in your um formation as as a journalist your professional it's quite uh, well, first of all, it's it's you know it's very impressive, but it's also quite institutional. You know, you work for the Guardian, you work for CNN, you know, uh, you've been at the BBC. Like, it's a very like institutional like type of career. Um, so, and even when your schools and and the way you studies, how how that how do you manage to create your own voice? That's a good question. I think that um, I'm lucky in that I come from a family and a household where even till today, you know, I'm sort of sitting in our living room and my dad is off to the left here working away. And, you know, he is part of the Anglophone struggle in Cameroon. And when I was growing up, I grew up in a house that to my mind was very political with a small P, you know, um, and where the perception of, uh, you know, oppression and the need to do something about that was present. 
Um, you know, my family were very active uh, at the time in the SDF, which was the um, opposition, the Angafone opposition party in Cameroon. Um, and so in, in ways that were probably not intentional, um, and yet, you know, still very much, as you said, institutional, right? Like, I think often about the fact that um, my education and my place in life kind of coming from, you know, the uh, intellectual elite um, uh, has a lot to do with colonial proximity, proximity to colonial power, right? Um, and that's just the reality of the colonial project, right? Um, so those who were educated and, and, you know, to be able to form independent thoughts within that institutional setup um, really requires... I think a, a sense that the dominant system does not work for you, right? So while I'm really aware of my privilege and my multiple privileges, when I arrived in the UK, for example, I was aware that I, and particularly when I moved to London, I was fully aware that um, I, though I was an immigrant, I was a middle-class uh, West African immigrant from a, an intellectual family. And, and one that had, you know, been exposed while on the African continent to people from all over because of my mom's work at the United Nations. And, um, and so then the sense of entitlement I had really differed from my friends who on paper um, would be more privileged than I because they were British, um, but they were black working class British people. And so there's their sense of belonging and their sense of doors being open to them. And, you know, and I think I was just, from a from childhood, just really sensitive to human dynamics. I still am. I'm still actually too much so. Like I'm, you know, I'm trying to not be about <laughs> that kind of like the stuff that's happening around me all the time. I'm really super sensitive to that. Really, really mindful of the ways in which I have and other people don't have. Really, really mindful of the ways in which people respond to me and not to others. Really mindful of the way I respond to other people. And so, therefore, despite um, having this foot in. Um, in some way, I was always really aware that I was also on the outside. You know, my sense of belonging, it's only now at 37 that it's really starting to take shape. And it is not some, and I, and it is not a belonging to nationhood, to um, uh, a, 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 an indigenous or tribal identity, to even an academic um, uh, identity to, or, or, or a place of work. There was a brief moment where, you know, um, when I was just working at The Guardian in the ways that if you work in an organization like that, right, like your ego becomes intertwined with that organization. Um, but when I left to start in Zynga, which is my platform focusing on African women's stories, um, I had to let go of that, right? The kind of um, the the flowers you get when you go to a party and someone asks you where do you work and you say the Guardian, right? I was like, okay, that's no longer going to be my reality. But um, I have always felt that journalism even was a tool for me, right? I did not study journalism. I did not come into the media thinking that I wanted to work at places like the Guardian. I I very much describe it as having tripped and fallen into the space, um, and one that sucked me in because I have always written, because I've always told stories. Um, but first, actually, I wrote poetry um, because I've always been really observant and recognized the power of stories to shape our perceptions of ourselves and the world in which we live. This is something that has resonated from, for me from the jump. Um, so I have always felt like an outsider in every single space I have occupied. And maybe this has something to do with, uh, you know, uh, a, a, 
some kind of dysmorphia, some sort of, you know, neurosis, some sort of um, uh, lack of confidence in some way. Um, but I have been able to harness it because um, I've, I've now, I've always felt that if I then start to feel too comfortable within the institution, then I stop being able to see, stop being able to question, stop being curious, um, and then just go with the pack. And I've always been really, really aware um, that I am a shapeshifter. I am able to access spaces um, and people feel comfortable because I give them enough social cues, whether it's how I speak or how I dress or the things that I'm interested in, that gives them the impression I'm one of them. And that that flips both ways. You know, I'm all about that kind of like return to slippers and eat with your hands and fetch your water and watch your own, watch your own clothes life. Um, I think there's real power in being able to kind of like, you know, um, enter in and out of different communities and, and make people feel seen and heard that you were interested in them while you are sharing that space with them, but that I never belonged to any of those spaces. And those have, that has caused deep crises for me and anxieties for me, but I, it's also something that I really prize and value. And, and it allows me to do my work um, in these institutional spaces um, without taking the world beyond it for granted. Yeah. It sounds like diversity as a, as a, as a source of criticality that it was needed to survive to a certain extent. <laughs> so the, the two things were not in contradiction with each other, but actually was, they were needed, you know, to, uh, yeah, to, to, to survive and to navigate those spaces to a certain extent, even though it's not obvious, you know, even though, you know, having that response is, is not necessarily obvious because it can also be the other way around. Um, yeah, true. Um, you define yourself uh, as a, media pioneer do i yes <laughs> okay i did my search did you now okay yes. i'll take you it call yourself like a media pioneer i was interested you know i was interesting because you know i was interesting in kind of said like what what do you mean by that mm. what did you mean maybe <laughs> when you wrote it <laughs> when i did write it and i think well <laughs> i'm just gonna say accept it as you know someone else's words over me um <laughs> I think, well, I think it's always, it's because that when I started working in the media, so my first job in journalism was at The Guardian. Um, and as I said, I felt like I tripped and fell into that work. And I remember coming in, you know, my, my first editor said to me, oh, we have this thing called a Twitter account. Like somebody created it. I don't really know what to do with it. Like, so, you know, my job was to kind of figure that out. And so... It, you know, 2009, 2010, I was like, wait, there are all these people who are finding community on the interwebs and and social is a really big part of that and did that work. And even then, I remember being in an editorial meeting and my uh, one of the editors was talking about sort of sustainability of this development project that we were reporting on. And I remember asking, you know, <laughs> because when we're in intellectual spaces, I feel, you know, I, I feel on, on par with anyone there. And in, in many, many other ways, I am constantly sort of like, you know, agonizing um, about my, um, you know, right to exist. But in intellectual spaces, I'm like, yeah, listen, I got this. And so here I was, you know, a young Black African woman, because I still carried a Cameroonian passport until very recently, and um, saying to a white established female journalist, and because I have no real sense of anybody's, like I am, I am no respecter of 
like of you know position so I did not know how sort of like fundamentally important this woman was uh, at the Guardian and, and and all her credentials mm-hmm. um and she was here talking about sort of like the stability of this project and I was just like I'm sorry I don't think that any project that runs for three years can be considered sustainable like if we look at the development trajectory of northern nations um you know we're talking decades uh, hundreds of years and not not a three-year development initiative and you know she heard me and was like well why don't you write about that and that was the first thing I ever published at the Guardian right it came out of this sort of like confrontation <laughs> that I had um and I'm really grateful to her you know for seeing that there was something in here that needed exploring a different perspective that we needed bringing um so so what was your question <laughs> <laughs> it was the idea of, of a media pioneer yes so um, that I think it's true that all the roles I have fulfilled, even for example, the one that I'm currently in at CNN, CNN is a very established organization, but I'm trying to build something new even within it. Right. Um, and so I have always occupied these roles in media organizations initially, not intentionally at all, you know, just that being the places that I fell into and then wanting to, you know, Men keep alive and keep a job and pay my bills, um, ending up in these sort of more fringe projects. You know, I used to call the sites that I worked on at The Guardian kind of like the Cinderella sites. Like we, you know, we lived underneath the stairs. <laughs> and, you know, we were not, we didn't get the credit of other parts of the newsroom. But being in those more kind of fringe parts of the organization um, really allowed me to work in ways that I love. So, you know, we were kind of like, multidisciplinary uh, before that became a cool thing, right? Because I had to work with lots of different teams. Um, We did not get any of the immediate kind of visibility of the established parts of the newsroom. So we really had to think about audience and how we connect with people. And, And I guess even in the same way as, you know, it has now become true in my, in my personal life, the, 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 the space to create that is forged when you're on the outside, right? There's so much less pressure um, to to be anything that is recognizable or established. Gives you a certain type of freedom, though, of course, like if you care about it, you don't have the recognition, you don't have the validation, um, but it gives you a freedom to create. Um, And that, you know, now I'm able to leverage in the kinds of roles that I go into. So I'm actively choosing now um, to always be innovating um, in media, innovating in newsrooms, you know, and that really started when that, that first choice for me was then within Zynga, when I left the Guardian, when I left the institution, when I left, you know, the ego stroking potential of being a Guardian editor to go and start my own thing. Um, and then moving to the Netherlands to join um, and to build a new newsroom there. Um, and now coming into CNN to do the same thing. So. Um, I think it's just a continuation. I never really set out to call myself a media pioneer. I've never really set out to innovate for the sake of innovating. I've always only ever been motivated by the sense that there is something lacking in what we see as the narrative, the story of our day, the ways in which we've come to be, the ways in which we understand who we are and how we relate to each other. Um, and I can see that because I straddle two worlds, right? I straddle multiple worlds. And so I'm always like, wait, 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 you know, 
uh, Nzinga was born by recognizing that the story of feminism, the story of the struggle that women have did not reflect at all the women that I knew from the world in which I was coming from and that somebody needed to tell those stories, right? And this is what actually drew me towards um, Black feminism, the ways in which feminism has, you know, ignored the kind of codependence, the need amongst Black communities, particularly out of the States, but elsewhere in the world, you know, to imagine world, their lives with their men and not in spite of their men. And so this is just always, I'm always like, when I hear anyone say anything, it can be deeply frustrating <laughs> if you're in my life. Um, you know, th this always like, I will hear it and I'm like, okay, this could be true, but what else is true that we haven't seen and are not considering? Um, and that has just landed me in the spaces where I've been. There is this concept or this idea of like that we live in the narrative of the world before we live in the, in the word itself. And, and I think it speaks a lot also to your third word that it was language. And, and again, you, you touch upon it, you know, you left the guardian, you created Zynga effect, and now you are as equal in, 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 in where, where you build unseen stories often. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your purpose there? And, and why this is important. And the reason why I say why this is important is because, especially doing it like in a, now, like in a, 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 a place like CNN, um, in, a, in, an era, in an era where we are overexposed by information, you know, and, um, and to a certain extent, now you can see, oh, there's, there's information about everything, you know. Um, what is the role of, what is your role in this? as a journalist, as a CNN, uh, you know, uh, employee uh, to a certain extent, like, because in the end that's establishment, you know? And so why is this important and what are you trying to do? What do you think that, you know, that, that, you, can, that you can achieve there? I think it's important to be really humble, first of all, right? Because I think that, we need all the parts, right? I am prepared to form coalition with anyone who um, is even remotely curious about how we build a world other than the one that we're currently living in and, that, and, and, and who shares, you know, similar values about that. And so um, there is a specific role to my mind that organizations like CNN can play if they're, if they're filled <laughs> with more people um, who... Uh, are not just thinking about what the story of the day is, but thinking about the power of stories full stop, right? And thinking about, you know, the fact that we are just narrative, like everything about um, how our societies are organized, about who we believe we are, about who we're beefing with on kind of like on a national level and where resources go, like nothing about how our societies are organized is organic or you know like it is all a construct that starts first with story you know and I just think while that can be petrifying it is also an immense um it gives storytellers the most important role in our societies right in whatever format they're telling those stories um not politicians, not bankers, not the people, you know, not the insurance companies or the debt brokers, but actually the storytellers, right? Like if we can capture the imagination of how we tell the story, um, to tell the story that opens up our imagination for like, wait, could this be any other way? And to keep pushing 
um, what is acceptable in the narrative, right? And so, I mean, like, I'll give you a very kind of like uh, pop culture example, like perhaps me and every other black person to walk this, the face of this earth in 2018 was like, you know, giddy at the at the release of Black Panther, right? I think that was 2018. And, and you know, and the, the perception, like, why was that? Was It wasn't, of course, okay, yes, you know, um, you know, an all black cast or, but actually it was the, the story like blew people's minds, right? That it flipped things on its head, that the most advanced nation in this world is an African kingdom, that the most intelligent person in that most advanced nation is a teenage black girl. Um, like the, the potential to imagine the world differently when you are receiving it in a story and not in a kind of intellectual argument um, is just really expansive. And I loved that. And then at the end, it was kind of like, you know, Black Panther connects with the world or with America. And, you know, and the way of then <laughs> of then living out that newfound connection, that new sense of um, relationship is to buy a block and to do charity, you know, kind of like. <laughs> and I was like, really? Really? Is this the height of our creative imagination that like, you know, we're, we're just going to do a bit of charity, like some poor kid in Oakland is going to get free basketballs? Like, really? Um, and, and there is where I think like every time we can tell a new story that allows us to expand out our, our ideas. Like if we take the conversation about gender and that gender being on a spectrum, when people tell stories about cultures that had five gender identities, we don't have to argue today now about whether or not, you know, this person has the right to exist. We take a step back and enter into this into a story space and engage with the parts of our, our hearts and disengage with parts of our brain and just, and there is now a possibility for us to imagine as we suspend disbelief that this could be, that it could be real. Like I don't take my work as a journalist to be where the bulk of that storytelling potential is. I think that the, the kind of like the, the fictional storytellers, whether it's in books or in films or in, or in music, you know, that's why I get so sort of frustrated when I listen to songs and it's just kind of like the same old trite nonsense over and over. Like it's got a good beat and I'll shake my booty, but like, tell me a story, right? Tell me a story even in song. And when I look at a painting and I think, what's the story that you're trying to tell me? Um, and so I desperately believe in the potential for us to reimagine ourselves through story and that there is a very, very small role for that in people who have establishment titles that give you the sort of like, you know, who make their living as storytellers because the storytellers extend much beyond, you know, that. And we cannot rely on only ourselves to do that work. And we have to recognize, and that is what my job is in many ways. Like, I want to use the giant spotlight that is CNN to cast a light on, on the storytellers that are out in these streets and out here telling stories um, and are not part of the institution. You know, CNN is an organization for many good reasons um, that is actually a bit of a closed box. It only works much, mostly with itself. And so, you know, it takes a lot of time and energy to try and turn that out and to open up a bit wider and to find other storytellers who can then use that platform because I cannot trivialize what, you know, it means to be the biggest broadcaster in the world and what that 
audience numbers are like, even on digital. So how do I use that in small and meaningful ways to just shift shift the dial just a little bit on what we thought was possible or who we thought it was possible to hear from or what the story we thought it was possible to tell. And it has become so commonplace in my life that I've almost, I've almost started to take it for granted. And I'm really humbled when I, when I see how people respond to it. At, at the end of the year, we published a gallery of 12 images from 12 photographers. Um, and we prioritized, of course, given what we do, uh, women photographers and to see like given that news photography is still so driven by you know the news agenda is still very much shaped by men and news photography is still very much a male pursuit and then we see the results from that on the images of kind of like war and destruction and 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 hurt and harm that are all pervasive and what do you get when you ask other people who are paying attention to other things who do not have access to um, all of them to, you know, institutions to tell us, okay, what is it that you saw? And so we then got a combination of images that spoke to the beauty and to the struggle of 2021, right? Like the struggle was there, yes, but there was also great moments of tenderness and beauty. And I don't think that that is necessarily embodied um, in, in women photographers, that they're the only ones capable of it. But I think that there is something about when you are outside of the dominant group, what you're able to perceive from that outside position and to see people respond to this. And like people were calling it kind of like groundbreaking. And I was just like, it is just a gallery of 12 images <laughs> by women. But that tells you something about how much we are still soaked in a different type of narrative that any kind of crack in the window um, to, to give people a different perspective, just lets in a gust of wind that is more refreshing than people had anticipated that they wanted and needed. Um, and I'm just like, I'm so thankful for those moments. Like if I get to be part of it and can pay rent in Amsterdam, yeah, I'm all for it. You know, I found it fascinating because it's, it's kind of this idea of a sort of contemporary griot, but that instead of responding to power, is responding to a to a higher purpose, whatever that is, or a personal purpose. You know, like there's there's um, and I found it interesting because the, you know, in around the world, the idea of a storyteller, you know, it's um, well, it turns out that obviously has much more power that that we thought. Um, but there is also like an element of the storyteller that somehow responds to power. It's it's a, it's a, it's imbued in power. Um, then there is the idea of a, of a storyteller that is about the revolution, whatever whatever that is, you know. But I found it interesting because uh, our our common friend, you know, Simon Jami, always talks about you know and teases about the idea of a revolution as a word, not in terms of a revolution that changed something, but the revolution of Earth. So it's a, it always go back to the same point because then there is there is a power that change you know but at the same time there is always go to the same point so the here the, there is an idea where the griot the storyteller um, has has an independent role and it talks to the, your 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 independent element <laughs> that you were saying in the beginning you know it has an independent role and and it is somehow and it and it, it it's somehow like it's it's almost like um 
um, the way you're describing it, it, it feels like the role of the griot is mainly to bring about light, you know, as equal in the sense that it's, it's mainly to bring about, to balance it out, whatever that is, to balance out the tools that are out there in society. And then I guess society and people and individuals can, can pick and choose, but they, they need to be exposed yes. to what is out there. I would use a different phrase. I would say that the role of the griot, the role of the storyteller is to open up space, right? Mm imaginative space mm. um because i think simone is right like the revolution in that sense of there being a kind of like circular movement that ends up back in the same spot i would like to believe that what leaps us into a different revolution right a different sort of uh yeah oscillation uh of exploration and ideas etc is the story right that mm. always that that is what catapults us it's not the technological innovation you know we 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 perceive that the technological tools right from when we you know discovered fire um through to you know 5g internet or whatever it is is what propels us into a new space no i think it is the stories that we we tell about those innovations and what it means about our society that propels us into a different space and then it is the the quality of that story the liberatory power of that story like how many people does this narrative allow to exist whose humanity is recognized in this narrative that's why i'm really concerned that actually in i think that today the most powerful storyteller aside from you know i don't even think it's actually hollywood i think it's the silicon valley entrepreneur you know that we have given these people the narrative power right and they have used it at TED Talks and at Aspen Forums or whatever, and they're telling stories about who we are, and they're not independent. Um, they're trying to build, you know, they're trying to build very particular worlds that serve their organizations, that serve, and we have given these narratives so much power. Like, let's look our understanding of what, for example, the gig economy is. Like that narrative is entirely shaped by Silicon Valley about what is meaningful work and not meaningful work and who is an entrepreneur, the kind of, you know, and the ways in which these titles and the stories that underpin them really give some people the right to remove care and concern from people who need it because they are now entrepreneurs right we don't need to care about the quality of their work the quality of their lives their well-being because they're now entrepreneurs in the gig economy like that is an that is a narrative you know and and so we must always then also if we recognize that story is important and that the griots are important also always remember to challenge our griots like where what is this what world is your story building you know and i'm interested in that world that really just with every oscillation, with every revolution, allows more of us to live more full, complete, free lives. What we choose to do with that, I have no higher purpose for human beings. We can, if you want to be a layabout, <laughs> that is your full human rights to be. Um, I just want, and not just for the for human beings, you know, I, I think we we don't think and talk enough about, yeah, the non-human world, and yet we desperately need it, you know, more than it needs us. So as we enter into a new revolution, 
what do those stories look like that in, that reimagine our relationships with the natural world, with the non-human world? And, and what we do with that, you know, it's anyone's guess and it will not be perfect, but I'm not kind of scurrying away working to describe a utopia that is limited in its scope and potential. No, I'm trying to, with every story, open up uh, a way for us to see more people exist and exist fully. And to do so, there requires some kind of holding to account, right? That's the justice part. There is a kind of, you know, there's a calling out, there's speaking truth to power, um, and there's seeking kind of, you know, uh, a change, you know? Um, I think people, I cannot help but think about this as I sit here in South Africa and, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, has only recently been put to rest. And thinking about his deep understanding of love and curiosity and story. Um, after all, these were the people who told the story of the Rainbow Nation. Um, but that perhaps, I don't know if it was a lack of courage or a naivety, um, the lack of consistently holding the feet to the fire of those who held power at the time to, to talk about that justice part, right? Does that mean that we don't need reconciliation? Does that mean that we don't need love? Absolutely not. But there is this kind of ongoing need to, to challenge where power, to identify and challenge where power rests and then to open up the conversation about how we redistribute it. And it seems to me that, you know, the, you know, in this last part that you said, and 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 these three words, curiosity, love, and language that you use, they're actually action. You know, they're they're all like it's it, they're all somehow you know reside like their power resides in the idea of action of doing, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that that makes sense, and especially you know now that you sp- spoke about attribution. Tutu, you know, and 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 that generation, there is an element of of doing uh, that that cannot be um, um, undermined. That is actually at the center of these three of these three words. Um, I have a last question. I, I, I need. I would love to to hear from you, like, because you, you cover a lot of unconventional stories uh, in in your career. And my last question is that, is there one that, that it was particular, particularly important for you or that moved you or changed you in, in some shape or form? Another excellent question. What is the answer to that? Oh, is there one story? You know, I'm going to, it's not... Um, it's not the kind of, um, I don't, I don't do favorites of anything, right? Like it's, it's always kind of like what I'm listening to now, what I'm enjoying now, as opposed to kind of like the, the one thing always and forever. So I'm going to give you the example that most, that comes back to mind as, as having most moved me and touched me now and reminded me of the power of story. Um, so there's a story that was run, it's not even one that I worked on. Um, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, a, a photographer and a writer did the story. 
um, about the homelessness and drug uh, epidemic um, in San Francisco from a really moving human perspective. So it is the story of a mother who sells after she has two children who, um, who become addicted to various substances, one dies of an overdose and that propels her to go to San Francisco, move from wherever she's living um, and sell all her belongings and move her life to San Francisco in the hope that she can rescue and save this, her, her, her child and take this child off the streets. And she fails to do so. Um, and I remember reading the story last November, I was in Paris, we were working from a cafe and I was so moved by it. I was crying and I needed to go for a walk and ended up in a comic book shop, <laughs> which is my happy place. Um, and I was, and the reason I was so moved was because there was no moralizing that tends to be very present in the institution of journalism that is filled with dominantly with a specific type of person. Like it is not cheap or easy um, to become a career journalist, right? Um, and so, you know, the kind of middle-class preoccupations that can exist uh, and the ways in which that are reflected when we talk about people who are down and out, who are disenfranchised, um, that, that it had just none of that moralizing. It had no pity in it. And the combination of the photography that was really earnest and the words that were really earnest and, and no easy, here we go, we have solved this. This is the problem of you know, drug abuse and homelessness in, in San Francisco. And here's what the answer looks like. It didn't do that at all. And what it did also was then move the story out of the personal into the systemic, like in very subtle but consistent ways you came to understand the systemic challenges that exist when you're trying to deal with this issue. And so then if I was the person who had to try and reckon with this, I found that story to open my mind, create space in my mind that doesn't kind of race from what I think I know the problem to be to what I perceive the solution to be. It created space for a reckoning with the kind of multiplicity of the challenges that exist and just moved me so very deeply, so very deeply. And I remember thinking, this is it. Like, you know, we're not in the fiction space. We're not telling stories about superheroes and there's no sci-fi, you know, in the work that we do. But, oh my God, to be able to get access to other people's lives, that they trust you so deeply with their story and that you tell it in a way that, you know, doesn't aggrandize or diminish. Um, and then you hand it over as a gift to people. I mean, even now, as I think about it, I think, wow, what, what a privilege to do what we do. And then people will engage with that and take from it whatever they get, but you've now handed it over. It is no longer yours. It is now an offering, you know, on the, on the altar of story. Um, that story just really, really moved me. And there are probably countless others like that, but I just was really, you know, really, really touched. Um, by that story. Eliza, thank you so much. This was enlivening and heartwarming. I had no doubt about it. And yeah, thank you. Always a pleasure, Adama. Um, yeah, 
I guess hit me up on the interwebs to tell me what's going to happen next. Um, but sending you much love and light for the year. See you soon somewhere. All right. Definitely. For sure. All right. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.